Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, using musical preferences to predict people's personality. If listening the music that you like can reveal to other entities that you are extroverted or particularly open, then it opens the door for people to make use of that information and manipulate you in more subtle ways. And the reality of being able to populate other planets. Life on Earth is destined to disappear in about a billion years when Earth exits the habitable zone of our sun. So people are saying that this would be a good time to start looking at other options. But first, Facebook's chief executive Mark Zuckerberg has been facing American senators and congressmen this week, answering questions in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica data collection scandal. Joining me on the phone from Washington is Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent, to discuss Zuck's performance and whether he gets a like or not. Hello, Hal. How are you doing, Ken? Great. So first, how do you think Mark Zuckerberg is faring under the Klieg lights of the Senate? I mean, it depends on what measuring stick you wish to judge him. I think as far as Facebook will be concerned and the folks sitting behind him watching his every move, sort of his team, I think he's doing pretty well. He's not dropped any major clangers. The market really loved what he had to say yesterday. And from Facebook's perspective, he's doing pretty well. He's very practiced at this. That's clear. Have we learned anything new that we didn't know before? Uh, we learned that Facebook is cooperating in some form with the Mueller probe. And Zuckerberg, first he said, oh, you know, we've received a subpoena. Then he said, actually, can I change that? I don't think we have received a subpoena. We might have received a subpoena. So there's a little bit of new information in terms of how Facebook is cooperating with the Mueller probe. Other than that, it's all been pretty cookie cutter, to be honest. A friend of mine, Alvaro Bedoya, who runs the Georgetown Privacy Law Center, he described it as 70-cent kabuki theater and 30% information-gathering exercise, which I think is about right. Okay. Now, kabuki theater, of course, is this over-dramatization of behaviors and gestures in which there's very little substance going on. So I understand the analogy. What about the fact that he's doing this mostly for the purpose of theatrics in order to boost his share price and to show investors and the public that he cares, even if there's no substance behind it? Well, one, one of the problems from, I guess, from the public's perspective is that this senatorial hearing, it's got half of all the senators in the United States. And that meant that each one of them only had five minutes for questions. This meant it was very difficult to get to any kind of substance of anything. Another problem with the situation is that 
politics in D.C. at the moment with Republicans controlling the House and the Senate, it means that there's a sort of weird bipartisan agreement to go after the tech companies. But if you think about it and what the tech companies do, they employ large numbers of people. They're not heavily regulated. And they're some of the fastest growing companies in America. You'd think that Republicans would love those companies. So that this does not fit well culturally, even though it does fit well economically and politically. And that, that's part of what is driving the weirdness of this. Okay, so let's talk about the R word, regulation. What are the tea leaves that you can read in terms of Washington, D.C.'s appetite to regulate and Facebook's willingness to be regulated? So I think it's important to break regulation and the possibility of it into at least two separate areas. The first is privacy. And that's kind of, you know, the tea leaves there are very murky because privacy itself is kind of a tricky concept. Stuff and Facebook in general have stated openness to complying with the European privacy regulation, is GDPR. And in that case, why would you necessarily need a whole new American law, right? But the more interesting regulatory aspect is antitrust. And that is the idea that Facebook is a monopoly in a certain kind of market. And that has been sort of gathering steam for the past couple of years, not just about Facebook, but about all the tech giants. And one of the interesting things that Zuck said in the testimony last night or I don't know if he actually said it, but it was in the notes that a clever AP photographer managed to snap a picture of while he was away from his desk, which is that Facebook considers itself to have 6% of the advertising market, which is worth $650 billion. But that's all advertising. That includes billboards and TV. It's everything. And for Facebook to say that that's its market is a little bit ridiculous. It's never going to be selling adverts on TV or on billboards or you know on bus stops. Let me challenge you on this. I think you're the one who's got a very narrow conception of what Facebook is. If you're a media entrepreneur like Zuck and your idol is someone like Murdoch, and we know there's a huge interest by Zuckerberg for Murdoch and how he's operated and what he's done and how he's managed and how he's built his empire, then perhaps you do look at the world not as I'm going to be the king of digital advertising, but I'm going to be the king of advertising. And in fact, maybe that is the right metric, and maybe we're getting actually a real insight into how Zuckerberg thinks of the world. I think that could be true. That maybe that is the right way to read that 6% to $650 billion number. And just purely from an antitrust perspective, if that was the case, then you would expect Facebook to start spending money in that domain and investing and trying to sell products in that domain, right? Point taken, although I'd note that when Google acquired DoubleClick, which had assets both in terms of the physical world as well as the online world, people thought that was surprising. But today, we wouldn't think it's too surprising that you're going to try to put advertisements in television shows or on radio. Let me ask this as a final question, Hal. No one can watch Zuckerberg being escorted into the Capitol under armed guards without noticing the echoes of him looking like he's undergoing a perp walk. This is not very good imagery if you're the CEO of a tech company. What do you think is the long-term lasting effects of this moment that we're looking at where DC is becoming so interested in the tech platforms? The way you pose the question is the right way to think about these hearings, which is as a moment that is more symbolic importance than informational importance, perhaps. I was talking to some folks in the line and, and a group of people who none of them wanted to be identified, but they said that some form of regulation is in the coming years, if not this year. And we need to be careful that we don't get the wrong kind of regulation that does overall harm to the market and to consumers. Hal, thank you very much. No problem, Ken. Thanks for having me. Next up, 
What is the link between musical taste and personality? Could a love of Debussy say something about you being an extrovert? But then what about the Sex Pistols? Or Bob Denver? A new paper in the journal Psychological Science has been looking into the relationship. Joining me down the line is Matt Kaplan, the economist science correspondent who doesn't exactly sing the praises of what this could all mean. Hello, Matt. Hello, Ken. So, Matt, this is pretty interesting research. Tell me, what is it that the researchers did, and then what did they find? Well, they knew about the rich trove of anecdotal evidence suggesting that different personality types leaned towards different types of music. The problem was many of these anecdotal pieces or smaller studies lacked diversity of participants, so just a bunch of university students at some college somewhere, or they just lacked in sample size. They, They didn't have very many people. And so they thought, okay, right. The only way to solve that kind of a problem is to grab a huge number of participants. So they really threw the kitchen sink at the problem. They recruited 22,000-plus participants of different ages and different backgrounds from all around the world. And then they asked them, could you listen to music and tell us which music you like? And what was really interesting here, Ken, was that 45% of the volunteers that were recruited were over the age of 22 And that's important because up until the time this study was conducted, almost everything had been done on university students who, you know, university students are creatures of a specific type. They tend to behave in a certain way. And most particularly, they like the music of their friends rather than developing their own tastes. And so the researchers really wanted to make sure they broke out from that and grabbed a large percentage of their participants who were not of that age. Okay, so big N, diverse N, what do they do and what do they find? Well, they, they ran these personality tests, which personality, I don't know if you're familiar with it. There are really five components of standard personality tests, and these are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Of course, the beautiful ocean score. We all know this. Yeah, yeah. So they asked the people, which music did you like? And the thing is, they had to be very careful about the music that they presented to people, because if you present Led Zeppelin or Billy Joel, that's stuff that people are familiar with, and someone who's from a distant culture may view that differently than someone who's heard it for years, and maybe they got dumped when Billy Joel released some specific album, and therefore they view it negatively. So they needed to try to grab music that people would be unlikely to be familiar with. And so they went into this huge index of music that hasn't really been widely published. A lot of it was uh, tribal music from all around the world, and they presented it to participants who would be unlikely to know it, especially since their participants were also from all around the world. And they had them rate how much they liked it. And what they found was that there were certain personality types that liked certain things. So, for example, people who rated highly on openness had an appreciation for sophisticated music. Okay, so now I have to ask, what is sophisticated music? Well, it's defined as inspiring, complex, dynamic. Okay, and what else did they find? They also found that folks who were rating highly in openness lacked an appreciation for mellow music and contemporary music, which is kind of percussive, electric, and definitely not sad. Okay, so what about extroverts. What did they have a preference for? Extroverts had a, had a definite preference for unpretentious music, which is defined as an uncomplicated, relaxing, and acoustic. What's really interesting is those who scored on a, high on agreeableness uh, showed an appreciation 
of pretty much everything, which makes sense. If you're really agreeable, then you're going to say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good, too. Yeah, sure, why not? This is great. It almost fits the stereotype. Yeah, yeah, I know, it does. And those with high levels of neuroticism uh, behave exactly the reverse, rating everything as, meh, you know, not that enjoyable. Okay, so this is great. So the Canadians love everything, and my next-door neighbors dislike everything. I get it. It's entirely possible, but if you know anyone who's highly conscientious, well, you're not going to be able to predict much of anything on that front because conscientious failed to predict musical tastes in any way at all. But still, I mean, think about that for a second. Of the five traits, four of them are pretty well defined by musical traits and, and musical preference. So if you were to go out and list the music that you really like, you are probably unknowingly revealing quite a lot about your personality. So just when we thought that Facebook learned all about who we were based on what we liked, what we didn't, now we know that Spotify has that same amount of personal information stored about us too. Yeah, it's it's kind of worrying when you think about it because you get you know, online quizzes saying what's your favorite kind of music or could you tell us what your favorite kind of music is or Spotify, which says tell us what music you like so we can play stuff for you that you're going to really enjoy. That seems entirely harmless, but realistically – it's not. It's telling the people who you're supplying the information to a fairly large chunk about who you are. So, of course, we're not suggesting that Spotify or any other online music entity is using this information in this way. However, we can identify what the rate benefits would be. It would tailor music to our tastes better, so we'd have a more interesting playlist and more interesting life as a result. But, but Matt, you've got some ethical concerns about how this can be misused. What are they? Yeah, well, I mean, if if listing the music that you like can reveal to other entities that you have a conscientious, well, conscientious is a bad example because it's not predicted by anything, but that you are extroverted or neurotic or particularly open, then it opens the door for people to make use of that information and manipulate you in more subtle ways. It's possible that people who are rate highly on neuroticism will be more susceptible to certain types of adverts, for example, or that people who are highly extroverted will respond to certain sorts of messages more effectively than other people would. And then this could shape the decisions that we make. And if that's true, then it suggests that revealing the music that we like is is actually relatively invasive and somewhat akin to providing a fingerprint of your personality to others which is open to abuse. So the fact that the researchers have done this work is important because they're revealing what we can learn from this information. We just have to now be really careful with how it's wielded. Matt, thank you. Before I let you go, I have to ask you, you've really been mentioning Billy Joel a lot during this episode. What personality are you and where does Billy fit on this? No idea. Probably highly neurotic. That definitely falls into the category of Matt. But, uh, you know, extroverted as well. So who knows? Okay. Well, perhaps I should ask Cambridge Analytica instead, and maybe they can tell me a little bit more about you. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thanks a lot, Matt. No problem, Ken. Thanks. So what are your thoughts on music and personality or on the troubles at Facebook? Tell us in an email and send them to radio at economist.com or on Twitter, at Economist Radio. Now, regular listeners know that we often give away a book at Babbage. This week, we're offering to one lucky listener a copy of a book called Milk, 
A 10,000-Year Food Fracas by Mark Kurlansky. Now, to get the book, you need to email us and answer a question, and it's usually a little bit of a creative question. This week's question is, if Isaac Newton were alive today, what would he be doing as an occupation? I'm looking for the most creative and plausible response. And I will choose one lucky listener based on my subjective idea of what I think is a good winning answer. So please email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, we look at the possibility of making science fiction a reality and sending life on Earth to other planets. Specifically, taking microorganisms and transplanting them into star systems far from our own Milky Way. It would make Earth an intergalactic empire. This is not the April 1st version of the podcast. The idea of seeding alien worlds is now being seriously considered by scientists. Joining me down the line to look at the feasibility is Benjamin Sutherland, who has been writing about this for The Economist. Hello, Benjamin. Good to hear from you. Likewise. My first question to you is, how is it possible to actually seed an alien star system? Well, there are a few ways uh, scientists are discussing doing it. In a sense, we've already seeded uh, Mars with microbial life from Earth. The Curiosity rover itself has about 270,000 microbes that survive the journey from Earth, and about half of those are still alive because they're inside the spacecraft. As far as seeding alien star systems, the closest of which, of course, is Alpha Centauri, a little more than four light years away, that's obviously a lot more difficult, but a number of people think the technology to do that could be here within a few decades. Let me ask, Ben, what does it mean to seed a star system, and why would we want to do it? Part of it is a philosophical issue. If life itself has a purpose, certainly it is to expand, to propagate, to continue, to reproduce. Life on Earth is destined to disappear in about a billion years when Earth exits the habitable zone of our sun. So at that point, we're going to lose life. And as far as we know, it's only arisen once in the universe, and that's here and now. So people are saying that this would be a good time to to start looking at uh, other options. So who are these people who are thinking so far ahead who are looking for the best interests of the human race one billion years ahead? A lot of them are experts in universities. Some of them are people working at uh, JAXA, Japan Space Agency, um, other space agencies. Some of them are, are philosopher visionaries. It's kind of a motley crew. But it also seems like there's some danger to this. If we're going to bring earthly biological materials into other star systems, we could theoretically be bringing in pathogens that could do some great damage as well. Not unlike what happened to the New World when the settlers came and the native population there got decimated by diseases they hadn't been exposed to before. Absolutely. And that's why uh, space agencies like NASA and the European Space Agency really frown on these efforts. Uh, the idea is that uh, a virus or, or some sort of uh, bacterial material from Earth could prove fatal to an alien life form. The scientists counter that argument by saying that you would target planets or worlds that, that are too young to have independently developed their own life. Another uh, precaution would be you could use remote sensing equipment to determine if there's oxygen in the atmosphere or other chemicals that would be suggestive of uh, life 
in that world and, and just simply avoid those places. This sounds very weird. Did you have the feeling when you were writing this story that you were really looking at something that was of incredible seriousness or was this a little bit more of an intellectual exercise by people who are more creative than pragmatic? Uh, that's a good point. It's it's essentially probably a little bit of both. You look at it from one side, and we do know that life, if it has a purpose, wants to expand, propagate, and reproduce. And from that perspective, this could be, in the bigger picture, humanity's greatest calling. Uh, it does help us focus minds on, on what we have here on Earth. Life, as far as we know it, is unique. This is where it happened, and even if we don't put together any of these missions or they don't succeed, it could help us to realize what we do have here and now and appreciate it more than we might otherwise. That's beautifully put. Benjamin, thank you very much. Hey, good talking. Uh, really appreciate it. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the host of Babbage, and in London, this is What Does Our Music Say About Us? The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.